think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 45 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 46th episode. I'm Laurel Carboneau, and he's a Chan Renville. <laughs> there we go. I like yeah, this. See, there I, we go. I like this, Chan. So the solution is a bipartisan compromise that everyone can live with, which is the worst kind of policy, really. Um, so this week, we've got a bit of an unusual structure in that we'll be talking uh, at you for 15 minutes or so, and then we actually have an interview to roll for the second half, or sort of the latter two-thirds, I suppose, would be more accurate. And that is with uh, Dr. Monica Dutt, who is executive director of Upstream, a think tank that you will hear more about in about 15, 20 minutes. Um, so with that, let's, uh, without further ado, let's go into what is the big story in Ottawa this week so far, which is... Mm, cannabis? Not this time. <laughs> <laughs> no, I suspect you're referring to the Transmorgan. Transmorgan. Oh, Jesus. Jesus, I, you're bad at I, this. I, <laughs> <laughs> I blame the two sips of beer I've had. Uh, the Kinder Morgan uh, pipeline... Trans Mountain. There you go. Um, where on what day was it? It would have been Sunday. It was yesterday. Sunday, Sunday yeah. afternoon into late evening. Word came out that uh, Kinder Morgan was basically going to stop pursuing the pipeline. Yeah. Well, they were a little less than that. Suspending all like non-life support functions. Yeah. yeah. And giving it till May thirty-first to work out yeah. what the hell is going to happen with this thing. Uh, which a month and a half or two months is not long in terms of pipeline. The clock is ticking. In terms of pipeline years. Indeed. Um, so basically, ooh, that doesn't look good at all. The Liberal government uh, seemed to be caught rather flat-footed by the announcement. Well, it's a um, weird time to announce that. It is. I honestly, I think part of the reason uh, they announced that, like, they had... Uh, Kinder Morgan wanted to communicate to that that to the government ahead of time. They could have, but they didn't want to. They wanted the government to be caught flat-footed. Because it just really likes to fire under them. Yeah, I mean, yeah. This, this happens all the time. It's sort of like the Bombardier approach. Every time Bombardier wants money, it threatens oh, to sorry, lay off. Oh, sorry, we ran out of money. It threatens <laughs> to lay off 500 people, and then the government responds. Like, this is yes. a hallmark of many large corporations, particularly in Quebec. It's a sort of um, corporate shock doctrine, if you will, Etienne. <laughs> Your no, favorite concept? No comment. Um, so I, I think, you know, Kinder Morgan wanted to rattle some people in Ottawa, and I'm, I'm, I, would, I think they did. I would say that was achieved. <laughs> yes. Uh, you had, they had, uh, I was about to say Minister Rickford, uh, but Minister Carr... Okay, who is Minister Rickford? Gre- Greg Rickford, Minister of Natural Resources and Conservatives. I don't even remember the guy. Yeah. Carry on. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> but... <laughs> How many ministers ago now, was that? The reason I'm giggling is because it's reminding me of a friend who said he sounded like... His name always sounded like a dog was saying, and it would go... Rickford! Greg Rickford! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but no, not Greg Rickford, Jim Carr... Uh, Jim Carr held a uh, sort of hastily convened press conference in front of the carnage left by the Parliament Hill skating rink. It's pretty much gone by now. Uh, yeah, I actually haven't walked on the hill, but it was all fenced off. So having the press conference in front of the fat, fast fencing and the centennial flame or whatever it's called. 
It is um, called that, yes. Uh, yeah, and eternal, but it's not eternal. It's not. They turn it off like once <laughs> in a while. Weekly for maintenance. Yeah, it's kind of sad, actually. Um, really, I mean, they were clearly rattled. They were clearly flat-footed. And they're in a tough-as-hell position here trying to arbitrate between uh, BC and Alberta. Trudeau has done or has tweeted the pipeline will be built sort of unequivocally. Yes. Um, which My I favorite response to that has been people doing the like SpongeBob repeating the thing back at you meme uh, to that, which has been kind of amusing. Um, You're not familiar with this one? No, no, oh, it's a good one. Listeners will be familiar with it, and they will they will think it's funny. <laughs> um, I think Paul Wells pointed out how awkward of a situation that puts Trudeau in because the pipeline is unlikely to be built in the next you know year and a half leading up to. Mm-hmm. Um, the election leading up to yes that's what we're looking for (laughs) leading up to my 30th birthday actually um and so awkward there um even if you know the bc government backs down there's still going to be significant grassroots opposition oh yeah it's turning into a mess and frankly this is exactly what left-wing uh protesters want yeah. Well, so, I mean, they, I get, can you blame them? They seem to have completely gotten their way on this. Uh, it's like, heavens, our plan has been completely successful. <laughs> Whatever will we do? Um, to, to put it on the record, as a Fort McMurray boy, I, I think it's very clear where I stand on this issue. Yeah. Um, you just think it's it's good. I, I, well, you're, you're Mr. Like, we're going to invent a freeze ray that will reverse global warming. So, like, I can see why you're not super, like, concerned about this. We're, we're not going to get into those theories. Uh, <laughs> you don't want to deny it, though. We're, we're going to save the freeze ray conversation for episode 50, maybe. Yeah, just contract some Bond villains to... Yes. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I, I hate all of this. I just wish the damn pipeline could be built. And, I mean, if the RCMP needs to start cracking down, the RCMP needs to start cracking down. That's sort of my take. Um, I note the headline today that said a judge was recommending charges against Elizabeth May, uh, was advising that they should be charged criminally as opposed to civilly, which I thought was... uh, I mean, look, like interesting. When you, civil dis- I think people who are perfectly aware when they do civil disobedience actions that that carries the risk of prosecution, and that's kind of the point. Um, like I don't think that's going to be like news to anyone. Um, the whole point is that you you sort of protest a law that you feel or an action that you feel like it's like the salt mark. I mean, okay, I'm not to compare pipeline protesters to Gandhi, but uh, just for the <laughs> sake of just for the sake of like you know, uh, people might not like that, but uh, like the salt march was like deliberately breaking a law to make prove a point. I think that's basically you know. I'm trying That's to the point of civil disobedience. I'm trying to remember. I should know this, but do MPs have any prohibitions on being able to serve while facing if found guilty of a crime of a federal crime? That is a really good senators question. do. Yeah, I don't um, know. I suspect MPs don't because they're elected and not appointed. Yeah. Um, that's sort of what I was thinking. I, I was I was trying to think was whether or not it would put her MP ship at in jeopardy. Um, but I. I don't think it will. I honestly don't know. Off the top of my head. I'm not sure. I don't think so. Um, well, good for her. 
I mean, that would be really something for parliamentary careers. Be the first Green MP elected, and then also the first to be expelled for being <laughs> convicted of a crime. Uh, um, so, yeah, to, to touch on Elizabeth May recently, um, one, of, one of the clips I saw on YouTube, uh, not on YouTube, I'm not looking at YouTube videos, on Twitter. Um, was Who her, watches videos on YouTube? Was her talking about refining in Canada. Oh, God. Okay, this is my... I'm just going to give my 10-second take on refining in Canada. Hit me. If oil companies thought that it would make them money to refine oil in Canada, they would. Okay, let me push back in my... Okay. In Elizabeth May. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to... Before you do that, I'm going to stop you right there and say... Following the laws of comparative advantage, if you would not find a greater rate of return elsewhere you would invest in oil refineries in Canada. But because there are higher rates of return elsewhere, they don't. Yes. There you go. Well, okay. I exp- I, Etienne explained this to myself and you. So there let, you let me carry this argument even further and add in some more pertinent information. One, oil refineries exist in various places in the world that are currently... Under capacity. Yes. Perhaps most notably in Texas, because the Texas oil industry ain't a booming these days. No, indeed. And this is the logic behind, uh, not Trans Mountain, Kinder, uh, God damn it, I hate Keystone XL. Yes, I mango pipeline names like no other. Jesus, if there's one thing I thought you'd be able <laughs> to get the names right for. <laughs> I was weaned on pipelines, and yet I can never get the names right. So you know weaned is like taken away from, right? Yeah, but raised on pipe. Like, no, well, weaned means no. It's like, like as a child, you were weaned on <sighs> milk. Just carry. So on. as a child, I was weaned on pipelines. What I'm saying. Okay, well, I'm, we're I'm not to... still weaned on. I'm not in Fort McMurray. <laughs> I'm not presently being. Weaned. We're gonna get so many pedantic comments. About this. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the other thing to say is, what is the lifetime? I'd love to just point blank ask Elizabeth May this question. What is the life? Uh, lifespan of an oil refinery and at what point would she like the country to be carbon neutral yeah i think that's a perfectly reasonable you you do not make you do not construct a multi-billion dollar oil refinery with a lifespan of like 30 odd years to try and cut off fossil fuels five. like it's so so stupid beyond the sort of economic weirdness and long-term well, yeah, to touch more on the ecological long-term weirdnesses, it's bizarre for me, the Green Party, to say what we really hate is exporting oil. What we really want is to burn it here. And well, it's like, well, that's, burn it, refine it. Whatever, right? So that it can get burned elsewhere. Like, you're not actually changing the carbon math in that case, really. No, which... Is weird. Well, okay, so what Elizabeth May's position is that it somehow prevents the pipeline from going to the coast okay so for her it's a tanker safety question not an emissions question that seems to be the argument she makes okay um that if you build the refinery in alberta because nimbyism is a hell of thing yeah um we're not going to need the pipeline but i still don't understand how that you need to resolves the oil, the oil barrels of oil oil elsewhere. to market question yeah. yeah okay so for me i think the like actual principal thing here if you're like serious about you know, climate or carbon emissions is that you don't build the pipeline. I mean, just if you were like, if you took this seriously, if you were like, this is like a. But here, okay, let me let me point this out though. What effects does that have? 
12 megatons approximately of carbon emissions. Sure. Yes. And I, let me put this in context. This is presumed, okay, the yeah. context, the context is, is that, that this at... is not a zero-sum calculation. No, and also... That it's... when oil leaves market in Canada and oil uh, resources in Canada are not yeah. fully exploited... That means that, you know, shale gas and other gases, uh, Venezuelan, sure. Mexican oil sands are yes. now going to be exploited. Well, I think oil sands are just like more accessible reserves in those places. I actually do think that... I actually do, I don't know. I think like, Mexico does have something comparable to oil sands that is, in fact, higher carbon yeah. and harder to yeah. get out of the soil. Coming back to the, the emissions question for, for a second, I agree that like there's a substitution effect that you can talk about. And I think that requires sort of concerted global action to deal with. Without, obviously, it's tough. Like, I think anyone alive would tell you that like concerted global action on climate change in a serious way is, is very difficult. And, I you know, we are we are definitely still figuring that out to put it as optimistically as I think it is humanly possible to put it. Uh, but Kinder Morgan represents you know, broadly 12 megatons of carbon emissions. Um, and that's in a context of we have to reduce our emissions by well over 200 megatons um, by 2030. And these are the, the Harper targets, the much derided Harper targets, but it's very, we are already on track to miss them considerably. And obviously this wouldn't help, but it's also not an enormous 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 part of the solution here like i i personally am not super super enthusiastic about the pipeline by any means but i think to say you know we're gonna not I, do the pipeline i demand you show enthusiasm to come into my house next no. time uh I, I think to to say that you know you do the pipeline or you build a refinery and like you, you're good is to be like to really 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 miss the forest for the trees like uh i think it's this didn't really get it covered a little bit uh this whole announcement by the 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 climate auditor or climate advisor i'm sorry i forgot what they've called the office wizard yes the the gandalf (laughs) sort of druid chief druid of canada uh is that yeah we are on track to miss um, paris emissions targets by like a very very substantial margin as we've missed every set of emissions targets we've set for ourselves since 1995 uh, and it's just going to take a lot more serious, concerted action, like at every level, and not just looking at the oil sector, but looking at transportation, looking at building, looking at really, really everything. Um, I personally think the UK has a good model for how we can do this. They have what's called a carbon budget, where they set sort of fifteen-year plan across every sector, like implementation plans and a target, and then just if they're not meeting it, they have an independent advisory sort of group that says like, okay, well. In this sector where you're not on target, you could do these things, these things, these things. The government picks an option. And they've actually been very, very successful at reducing their emissions in that way. It's a sort of like there's a lot of buy-in because there's a lot of input from stakeholders and even industry. Um, and obviously, they don't have as a carbon-intensive an economy as we do. Distinguish so distinguish that for me from a cap-and-trade program. Cap-and-trade just says we are going to put this as the limit and you can buy permits uh, to go over, uh, or you emit under this amount. This says we're going to take a more sectoral. It's kind of a, a sort of splitting the difference in that it is very regulatory. And for instance, if you look at what the UK does, it's a lot of like very, very tight building codes. Um, they're doing, Scotland has their roadmap for 2020 for 100% renewable electricity. I saw an interesting piece um, out of California that said building codes actually did next to nothing. Uh, really to reduce because the, the idea is that it gets offset in other ways yeah for instance you make 
places more heat efficient and they use the heater more. Yeah. Um, or that uh, engineers grossly exaggerate the efficiency gains of yeah. insulation and XYZ. I mean, really, like, I'd encourage anyone to look at the UK's carbon budget because they have not only the, like, budget documents to sort of explain how they've reached the, like, t- emissions target or cap, but also uh, the detailed implementation plans are actually, like, phenomenally really really detailed i mean this is like very 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 technical impressive work that's done across like every sector and i highly recommend looking at it uh i may throw up a link in the description if uh i remember to which i usually don't but we'll see uh but i think that that could be a really good way forward for canada that said obviously the uk has advantages we don't they don't have as carbon intensive an economy they don't have as cold winters they're not as big they're not as spread out uh, they don't have oil sands, um, so there's a lot of factors there that work in their favor. But in terms of like an overall approach to managing how we do carbon emissions, like Paul Wells, you mentioned, had that piece, and he talked about where emissions plans have been successful. It's where they're detailed, where they're clear about their targets, where they're clear about their implementation, where they have a clear timeline, and their serious political buy-in and stakeholder input into getting it done. And that's what works. So let me drop that conversation for a minute. Fair enough. And pull a different thread. Um, in regards to... With regards to. <laughs> offsetting. And talk, talk offsetting, a, little, sure. a little bit about offsetting. Particularly between uh, national jur- jurisdictions. One of the arguments in Canada against LNG... Liquidified natural gas. Yes. Any Anyone not paying attention. Um, yes. LNG is one of the other areas, the other debates that's happening in Canada and sort of the energy sector right now. And even the NDP have bought in, even the BC NDP, Horgan's government, who's blocking the pipelines to the best of his ability, has bought into the LNG uh, formula for the coast of British Columbia. Um, There's obviously different transport differences between LNG and uh, oil, bitumen. but in term, in strictly in terms of carbon emissions, yeah. the, the people on the green side point out, how can you say you're committed to natural resort or to um, uh, climate change initiatives and sort of capping carbon emissions when you're going to approve an LNG plant that, you know, produces X amount of emissions? Good question. One of the arguments, and I think this is important to keep in mind, that the world is globalized and that the LNG... <laughs> look, at Coper- look at Copernicus over here. <laughs> <laughs> that the sun is, or that the earth is round and this isn't going off the edge of the earth. And then it's going to China it's being used to fuel, liquefied natural gas being a cleaner form of fuel than coal and yeah. some of these other forms being used. Um, and it's being used to displace other dirtier fuels. So, I mean, the greenhouse gas emissions gain or net benefit, the reduction, is being displaced nationally, but globally, it behooves everyone. I personally, I... It's like, oh, but it's going to create a boost within Canadian borders, so that's all we... That's the numbers we're going to use. I think it is really, really always worth looking at downstream emissions and, as you say, sort of like what is the actual downstream effect of what we're going to do if we this extract is, this next barrel of oil. This but, is sending really mixed signals with our interview later today. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Um, but 
Yeah, no, I like I agree that it's always worth being thoughtful about like will this actually lower global emissions? Like lowering Canadian initiatives is important and a target we use because that's the one that we have the most impact on and like is the most easy for governments to focus on. But you're right. Like I think that that is a serious concern. Um to to focus on one thing that we haven't talked about at all, uh and it's the sort of indigenous land rights component to to the the Kinder Morgan especially, but to energy more broadly is that this government sort of indicated at several points that it would require or that it would adopt the UNDRIP standard. And now that, you know, Romy Saganash's bill has moved forward in the House of Commons, it seems that they are, it seems that they're serious about this. And that requires free prior and informed consent, as, as UNDRIP puts it, United Declaration, United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, to, for people who don't know. Um, and while there have been First Nations bands that have welcomed the pipeline, there are others that have not. And when you're talking about free prior and informed consent, that to me says you need the consent of every First Nations band whose territory this goes through, and that clearly is not there. Um, so if it's a government that takes that seriously, uh, they are not there on that. And like you can think that that's bad or ridiculous or whatever, but like that's so, so no, this is the, some, the standard the government set for itself. This is something where I, I will concede to perhaps being slightly uninformed. I really, really want to look at a map of this because I've heard like conflicting narratives. I've heard that all the groups along the pipeline path have agreed to it. I've heard that there are some along the path that haven't. I've heard that, like, I've heard every variation of yeah. this, and, and, and I honestly, honest, I just don't know what source, like, I haven't yeah. looked into it to any great degree, but I, I literally just don't know what source I, is accurate here. I personally really find that finding accurate information on pipeline issues in this country is very, very difficult, because it really comes from the perspective of either it's pipeline boosters or people who are, like, vociferously opposed to them, and, like, you know it's they both have agendas and it's like very hard to parse through that i find personally i find it really takes a critical eye to to discern what's actually going on it's one of the most difficult things to cover so if you're a canadian journalist working on this and you're doing a good job thank you because i like i rely on your work but like uh yeah it's tough it's really tough yeah i i yeah i just want to see a map and i'm, I'm sure someone will point one out um from you know a pro or an anti-pipeline source i yeah i I just i don't know what the objective reality here is i don't know whether or not all the land that the pipeline is going to be on is owned by x or by y yeah and there's also the coastal concerns where like if this is going to have like if you have a coastal first nation that is going to have tanker traffic where they didn't used to and there's a risk to the coast i think like there you can say like should those people have been consulted Almost certainly, yes. I think, like, if you're if they're burdening a significant amount of the risk, then in, you know. In defense of Trans Morgan, as I understand it, Trans Mountain, Trans- Kinder Jesus. Morgan, Jesus. <laughs> as I understand it, the uh, the tanker traffic is not through areas that aren't already receiving tanker traffic. Okay. So, I mean, obviously, you increase traffic, you increase risk by yeah, virtue sure. of there being more. Um, but that this is not, you know, going yeah. through the yeah, it, Queen Charlotte Islands. And, the Haida as they're now called. Sorry, yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, like, fundamentally, the question of risk, I think, is an important one because Alberta is saying our economy relies on, on petroleum and on bitumen, which I think is, like, fair. I think, obviously, there there is a lot of extractive activity in Alberta and their economy kind of revolves around it in significant ways. But the risk for spills, for leaks, for uh, shipwrecks is all on BC. So I think... 
BC uh, is like, well, like, okay, unless it leaks between Fort McMurray and the Rockies. I bet you, I would bet you, so this, I saw a map of the other day, and it showed all the pipelines in Canada, and like, I would bet you Alberta, per province, I mean, without a doubt, has more pipelines yes. than any other province. But you also see the benefit. But also has perhaps more pipelines than many other ones. Yeah. No, I don't doubt that. But um, on the other hand, you see the benefits, or so, right? Sorry, than most other ones combined. Yeah. Um, and I'd believe that. But I just think, like, it's a different question when you are shouldering the risk but not really seeing the gains. Yes, there is a sort of diffuse, like, oh, you get some back through equalization. BC doesn't. Um, and you get it back through the Canada Health and Social Transfers, through income taxes of people who live in Alberta, whose high incomes are due to, in part, the attractive sector. Sure, okay. But, like, it's diffuse compared to the, like, very, very, very tangible benefits Alberta gets for being the center of extraction in Canada. Tough. Well, that's that... Alberta's approach, and... Tough. And Kinder Morgan is on hold now, so... I that mean, approach has not worked well so, so far. I mean, one of the things we could also discuss <laughs> if we were to belabor this conversation even further, although I'm sure somewhere Andrew Leach is rolling over in his I chair? don't know, professor swivel, swivel, swivel chair over some of the things we've undoubtedly messed up on this conversation, yes. is the concept of social license and whether or not social license was a f- waste of time. Well, I mean, clearly not. In the sense that clearly with, not what it well, and that they it, not getting it has proved no, very, but not, very not Lee's attempts to get. Oh, social I see. Well, you know, I think she really took a my way or highway approach with BC, and that did not work out. Yeah, but there was no there was no other approach. The company's cutting off money, saying this, gonna, this yeah. is never. Oh, oh, and now Notley's pushing yeah. too hard. Like no, no, Notley. Played her cards too close for too long. Trudeau played his cards too close for too yeah. long. But like, what would and it's more... time to break down the sledgehammer? <laughs> what would more yelling at BC accomplish? Like, you're just going to harden people's resolve. They're going to want it even less. Like, and frankly, like they just haven't shown a case where like a new bitumen pipeline is compatible with Canada's long-term climate change goals. Like, it's just like LNG. I think we can debate the merits, but like, I'm just not seeing it for this. He's he's staring at me slack jawed now, in in disapproval. Don't narrate don't narrate my facial expressions. Nothing worse than dead air, Tian. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm just not. I mean, there's obviously intractable differences between the two of us on this and how how it should be viewed. Um, I guess I stand somewhat on the side of the government. Um, I think they are taking the right approach now, albeit late. Um, and okay, let, let me not flatter the government too much. <laughs> no, God forbid we say uh, something nice about the government on this podcast. Um, I <laughs> think it'll be really interesting to see what they do in the next little while. Well, they, yeah, I mean, you you were talking real uh, interesting. Yeah, disallowance has been floated in the Globe and Mail or something. Roy, Reuters, there's a Reuters, Reuters article yeah. floating disallowance, which is a provision of the Constitution. Which allows for federal the federal government to basically sign off on any provincial law within a year of it being passed, and this was like from you know, confederation, yeah, yeah, literally from confederation because they wanted to make sure that provincial governments understood who was boss, their place in the union. Yes, um, yes, but this would be so antiquated as to appear novel. 
uh, which would be not good. Last used in the 1940s, if yeah. I'm not mistaken. It's sort of like when people talk about the federal government using the notwithstanding clause. Yes. The when, provincial government's using the notwithstanding clause. When, you know, someone won't let them bring Dorito, their own Doritos into the theater. Like, yes. this happens... Well, the provincial or the federal. Yeah. This would be this would be the ship money sort of course of action. Uh, ah, what is, ship, what is ship money? He All asks. right, and moving on. <laughs> <laughs> ship money was when Charles I, uh, unable to raise taxes without Parliament, because he had suspended Parliament uh, after a unruly session decided that he was going to claim the ancient right of ship money where coastal communities would have to defend or defray the costs of raising uh, ships or building ships uh, but then extended it to several like inland counties where traditionally this had never been exercised in fact it hadn't been exercised in England in like generations and this really pissed a lot of people off so when the parliament came back it was the long parliament which had the English Civil War and he ended up getting his head cut off and all that good stuff so long story short uh, don't do that can I use this to bridge the point about Canadian taxing and how tax changes work in Canada? No. Go ahead. <laughs> Fun fact. Um, taxation in Canada is able to take effect before the legislation... Um, actually is passed? Is actually passed. Hmm. There's sort of a separate process. I think it's a ways and means. Um, right. That allows the tax... Like, if the government announces a budget, it's going to do X, Y, Z, then it can take effect, you know in the coming fiscal or whenever it's supposed to without the legislation actually having achieved full assent. Which I had that question initially after a bus full of drunken senators were debating how uh, changes to the tax-free savings account could, could take effect in 2015 prior to the legislation being passed because they didn't know this. Hmm. So now you do. Interesting. So that will, that will do it for this discussion of Kinder Morgan. I'm sure there will be more to come, as this is probably going to be a big story for the next month and a half or so until Hinder Morgan makes a decision one way or the other. Uh, and without further ado, we will roll this interview that we've recorded with uh, Monica Dutt, as I said earlier, the executive director of Upstream, and as you will hear again in just a few moments. Hello, we're here with Monica Dutt, executive director of Upstream. Um, Hi which had their conference, uh, their annual conference now, I think, third annual? Yes, third one. Is it always called Closing the Gap? I think it is. It's always called Closing the Gap, and then awesome. we all have a, always have a different tagline for each one. Is reconciliation this year? Yes, it was reconciliation and health for the next 150. And not to get too ahead of ourselves, but Upstream is a social determinants of health-oriented think tank based formerly in Saskatoon, but now kind of <laughs> in the ether. Yes, yeah, Upstream... Formerly based in Saskatoon, I guess that could be our tagline. Still too. got the, the yes, office space. We still have, but that's our, where our yes. office is, and that's where some of our still staff are. Still Avenue H? Avenue F. F, I was only. Oh, that was shoot, a test. That was close, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so we just thought you'd, it, since you were in Ottawa and mm-hmm. you guys do a lot of interesting research and sort of convening work, and especially at the conference, I went for a fair bit last year, a shorter amount this year with the Tian. Great. Uh, very, very good conference. A lot of great speakers. The the most nerdy conference I think I've ever been to in a good way. Oh, really? <laughs> um, I'm into far nerdier. So. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, certainly for Ottawa, I think. I think huh. Ottawa, we tend to have a lot of nerdy sounding conferences right. that end up actually not being very nerdy oh, at interesting. all. interesting. Okay. Because the social calendar here is more based around like policy conferences than right. around, you know, social engagement right. of the more traditional <laughs> sort. So if right. you want to see right, and right. be seen, these That's are the places. And, okay. Yeah, it does not lend itself to high level. Right. Uh, but yes, yeah, so once again, not to get too sidetracked, but um, do you want to tell us a little bit about both yourself and Upstream? Sure. So um, as I said, I've been executive director with Upstream for now the past year. I'm a public health and 
uh, sorry, preventive medicine. Oh my gosh, I should know my medical specialty. <laughs> Public health and preventive medicine specialist and uh, a family physician is my my training background. Um, but I've been involved with nonprofits and advocacy in, in various ways for many years as a volunteer and wanted to move from kind of formal public health where I've worked the last few years both in northern Saskatchewan and kind of through northern Canada and now in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia. Um, but then I wanted to work more in the nonprofit field so I, I decided to, to shift over uh, a year ago and um, executive director of Upstream, which, as you said, is, is social determinants of health focus. So we we try to work towards health and well-being using a, a justice and equity lens. So um, oh. for anyone who hasn't been on the website, do you <laughs> yeah. care to explain sort of where the name Upstream comes from? And I know there's a great video sure. that sums it up. Sure. Um, but do you, do you care to explain that? Sure. That's a great plug for the website, too. <laughs> so <laughs> you go to thinkupstream.net, you'll see this video. But yeah, it's a, it's not a, a new story, but I think we we've really used that as our as our basis. So it's it's the idea that you know you are standing by a river and you see a child in the river who's who's in distress, and you think, oh my goodness, I need to save this child because of course that's what most people would think. So then you pull this child out of the river, and then another one comes down, and you you keep going and you try to save these children, and more and more come. And then at some point, some some wise person says, hey, wait a second, who is chucking these kids in the river? And so the idea is that you got to go upriver to prevent these children from being, being in the river. And so that's kind of the philosophy of upstream, that when you look at health in particular, things like heart disease, diabetes, mental illness, all kinds of different health conditions. If you trace back, you can often see that they are connected to things like lack of housing or lack of a decent income or food insecurity. And and even more deeply than that, which kind of led to this conference, when you look at factors like colonialism Mm -hmm. and racism and some of the, the very deep causes, those connect very much to our health. So we need to go upriver, we need to look at policies that will change those conditions in order to help prevent the kids in the river or the the health conditions that come later. Yeah. So this idea, I think, sort of entered, I think, the broader public consciousness. I think it's been sort of well-known in sort of public health circles for Mm -hmm. for quite a while. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I think the most, like, the the biggest sort of stage it's gotten in recent years was... um, Wilkinson and Pickett's book, The Spirit Level, which sort of talked about the sort of health impacts of inequality specifically. Mm -hmm. And I know that book sort of had its criticism, but it did at least really bring this idea to to a broader kind of audience. So how have you guys found as, you know, I think Tank dedicated sort of like more to public education than I think to research. Is that fair to say? We've, we've had a mix. So we've had kind of the the outreach piece, which has been things like this conference, things like supporting community events, Saskatoon and now in other places, things like supporting community groups to, to take on some of this, this work, supporting students to take on some of this work. Uh, the research piece has definitely been, been part of it. So we've worked with, um, say, again, because we started in Saskatchewan, we did work with the Saskatoon Health Region around mm-hmm. looking at how municipal policies that were being developed impacted health. Um, We've been involved in a number of different campaigns and a lot around kind of income and poverty. So uh, poverty costs analysis, which is essentially looking at because we're not addressing poverty effectively, how much does it cost right. from an economic sense, which is often an argument that, that sways a lot of people. Um, and we are very involved in living wage work because mm-hmm. you know, decent income is one of the, the biggest 
determinants of health. Um, So yeah, we've had a range of different things. And then our our storytelling piece has been kind of a whole range of different mediums that we use from from blogs to podcasts to, um, oh, I've been told I need to say on this podcast (laughs) to try to steal some of your listeners that we also have a podcast Um, and, you know, social media and using a range of different channels to, to both further campaigns and research and more generally talk about social determinants of health. Okay, that's interesting because I know the research can be is a big part for, for a lot of think tanks, mm-hmm. but it seems like you guys do mostly research that is very, like, people will usually do sort of like policy white papers, like CCPA mm-hmm. obviously does the alternative federal budget, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, but you guys are more focused on actual community level, here's what this would look like on the ground in this community with this specific community's context. Yeah, we kind of had, our, our symbol is three and a half circles, so each one represents a piece of the work that we do. So one part is the, the think tank side of it, the other is the storytelling part, and the other is the outreach. So mm-hmm. we do try to have all of those kind of go through our work. You know, we're a, a small staff, so we, yeah. you know, we're not... I would say, you know, a, a leading think tank type of organization, but we've been part of different research projects. We've partnered with other organizations, so we definitely do that piece, but we also tie it in with, with the other strands. So we try to do a, a number of different things to, to further our mission. In terms of level of levels of government, is do you find a lot of your work is more with the provincial and municipal levels rather than the federal level because of sort of how hands-off the federal government is in terms of service delivery? Or do you see sort of a chunk on both sides because of, uh, let's say, the federal government's uh, anti-poverty measures, which are a lot, uh, I mean, they put a lot of funding and they get to pick program areas. So where do you sort of find the focus of your work? It's it's shifted through the years. So we've definitely had connections locally within Saskatoon in particular. But then as we tried to expand our work and work in kind of bigger policy areas, it's become um, we've had more of a focus provincially. So, for example, we've worked with uh, Manitoba government, Newfoundland and Labrador, um, looking at how they can better integrate health into the, the policies that they're putting together as government. So it's an idea called health and all policies. Mm-hmm. So that type of work we've been doing at the, the provincial level. And then federally, I think we're, we're moving more into that area because although they're not service delivery, really, we're not as... I'm trying not to be a service delivery focus because the idea is that, you know, there, there are lots of great organizations working to improve service delivery. We want to look at how do we prevent someone from actually needing to, you know, use the, you know, the, the jail system or the, you know, income support system or all of those service oriented, really important pieces. But um, we do have some focus there, but we're also looking at, you know, how do we not get there at all? So one of the things you said there was interesting. Was it health for all? Health in all policies. Health, health in all. Yeah. Um, which sort of reminds me a lot of the GBA plus gender based analysis mm-hmm. that the federal government has now been using for many years um, to examine all of their policies mm-hmm. with a gender based analysis plus. <laughs> well, no, I, I was yeah, going to say plus, gender right? income. The yeah. plus, the plus yeah. becomes a lot yeah. of things. Yes. Um, but health has never been one of the things that I've heard referred to as part of the plus there. Yeah. Um, so obviously a lot of different policy areas touch upon health. Mm-hmm. Is that sort of something that is being done successfully at other levels? Like are provincial governments sort of taking that up and doing analyses from a health perspective, are you finding? 
Like some are. Quebec has it built into its legislation, so there has to be a, a analysis done by okay. public health hmm. for you know, major policies and major legislation. So they have built it in. Um, there's a number of you know smaller governments, municipalities that have taken on that model and explicitly address it in that way. Uh, I think Quebec might be the only province that is explicitly said we are taking a health and all policies approach but you know my world before this was the public health world and often public health is involved in that analysis even if they don't you know have this term that that, that they use so like in Manitoba they have a kind of cabinet of representatives from different ministries and that they do look at the the impact across all their ministries from a health perspective so there's different ways ways to do it a health and all policies is kind of a neat catch phrase it can be done in different ways through legislation or through you know just saying this is how we're going to to do our work fair enough that makes a lot of sense um are there any sort of policy areas that you guys have found are really tough to persuade people the benefits of this compared to certain others is there any that you find this comes much more intuitively i find intuitively people seem to understand it's kind of the next step of what do you do about that yeah um so you know people understand that if you say are lower income or of certain racial backgrounds or are indigenous you are at higher risk of different health conditions and then the difference is you know why is that and so it depends if you take a very individual perspective you tend to to blame the individual and say Mm -hmm. well you were doing this you're not working hard enough you dropped out of school those types of things whereas if you take a determinants of health perspective then you're saying you know why is it that certain groups may be more likely you know to be single mothers or to not finish high school and it's it's much bigger than just someone not trying hard enough so that's i think the 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 big jump that needs to be made you know moving beyond just even as a physician we tend to look individually you know you need to stop smoking you need to exercise which is true (laughs) and I talk to you know patients individually all the time but I know that that is relatively ineffective compared to a policy that will affect a broad group of people to never start smoking in the first place well I think as a society too we just have a very deeply baked in notion of not necessarily like a just world but at least vaguely meritocratic outcomes Mm -hmm. that outcomes are correlated to individual effort and talent Mm -hmm. and often in the realm of health that is like the evidence i think it's like the top three determinants of health Mm -hmm. that correlate most precisely with you know poor health outcomes are Mm -hmm. uh income early childhood education and oh i can't remember the third one is it employment um yeah i'd say yeah But it's like, it's very striking how clear that correlation is when you look at it, uh, even across Mm -hmm. different countries. But I think we just don't have the vocabulary to really reckon with that kind of fact. Yeah. And you had mentioned the spirit level. And one of kind of the most groundbreaking things that came out of their research is showing that if we pull everybody up, everybody does better. So it's Mm -hmm. not just saying we're only focusing on, you know, the you know, people of lowest incomes, if we know that everybody's income can increase to a certain extent, there's kind of a limit. At some point, you just, yeah. you have more the than enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it was basically, but, there were like super, super hard diminishing returns yeah. on like actual like net added happiness mm-hmm. or like your know, quality of life yeah. after I think like $40,000 of income. 
Yeah, it's a, like it's, it it's, there's well. a gradient. So yeah. at each level of income, as you go up, your health is slightly better than yeah. kind of the, the level before you. So we know that even if you're at, say, 80,000, your health is likely not going to be as good at, as 100,000. Sure. And there's always individual examples to, to contradict that. But as a, at a broad level, you know, it helps all of us if we all are doing better. Yeah, that makes, I mean, a ton of sense. <laughs> yeah, like income inequality is such a big it's yeah. a, it's a health issue and we in you know US Canada we have far more income inequality than than many other yeah. countries do at so, least wealthier countries in terms of that so we mostly focus on federal politics here if we're you know mm-hmm. based in Ottawa both of us work or have worked in federal politics it's mm-hmm. in the various sort of roles what do you think the federal government could be doing now you know in the next budget to really advance kind of a social determinants of health approach in its you know social policy yeah, there's a few areas that I think federal government has a big role from a kind of healthcare perspective. The one that I focused on is national pharmacare, which I think is it's an easy one in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. It, I know it's very hard to implement, but there's such clear evidence around it. So in terms of healthcare system pieces that the federal government has a key role and healthcare is a determinant of health, I'd say that's by far the place that they could have the, the biggest influence. Um, other places are around income. So there are places where the, the federal government, either directly through employees they, they have, that you know there is a lot of talk around kind of gender equity, pay equity, and some questions around, you know, when is that actually happening and how is it going to, to happen? Things like that are things they can do at the, the federal level. They've done some work around housing and kind of a national poverty strategy. And again, there's all of those. There's always yeah. more you can do and kind of understanding that an investment in alleviating poverty now, like we've seen with, say, seniors, when we know that they have a, a basic income, it's improved health at, for seniors because right. we've invested in ensuring that people have an adequate, even a good yeah. um, income to be able to, to live on, we could be doing that across a number of levels. And federal government either does that directly or through transfers. And then kind of given the focus of our, our conference and one of our, our organizations focus as we try to work with different partners is around reconciliation. And that's from like service-based, we know that there's inequities in how federal government funds education and healthcare and you know, <laughs> tell and, me about and, it yeah. <laughs> of yeah. course yes yeah. you, you would know that individually uh, um to kind of how kind of broader policies are enacted and whether or not they have impacts on inequitable impacts on indigenous communities yeah oh that makes a ton of sense um one thing too is just out of curiosity um I, your predecessor ryan miley was mm-hmm. I, I i know him a little bit mm-hmm. and like he has his book uh, healthy society mm-hmm. talks a lot about how he sort of came to this view mm-hmm. of of seeing healthcare as a broader mm-hmm. social enterprise mm-hmm. and i'm just curious how you kind of came around to this and sort of what led you in this direction so I, I you mentioned i think before i started recording that you had gone into preventive and public health mm-hmm. and what sort of drew you to that side of healthcare rather than you know the, the more lucrative specialties <laughs> I didn't think of it as lucrative or not so much in terms of what made me excited. Um, I guess I'd say when I was, I I did an undergrad that was a liberal arts undergrad. I hadn't really known I would go into medicine and that kind of was, you know, everything a liberal arts undergrad should be and make you think about, you know, social justice issues and and where you want to fit and what you're interested in. Um, And then I also met a lot of physicians and I was at McMaster and Hamilton who were very involved with world like my thesis advisor she was uh the past president of physicians for global survival for example so that was a lot of advocacy around 
peace and justice and nuclear weapons. I was going to say, it sounds yeah. nuclear in theme. It sounds it very pessimistic as an organization <laughs> yeah, title. That's true, but in an inspiring kind of way. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so physicians like that made me see that you could take your health knowledge and apply it to these really difficult, challenging policy topics and be yeah. a strong voice. And, and so that kind of made me think more about medicine along with you know my mother, who was a, a physician and very community involved. And so that kind of led me down that channel. But then I got to medical school and I really hated it. And it was very (laughs) not a liberal arts degree. And it was, you know, rote learning. And then again, I met people that inspired me and thought, okay, I can just finish this. And then I found out about public health, which is a whole specialty where you're thinking about kind of community level health and, you know, policies. And and you can also do the patient care side of it. So I did do my family medicine training because I do like patient care quite a bit. And I think it's important. I don't if you're really trying to make broader health improvements, it's not going to fix things at a, a broader level, but it's still essential. So I wanted to do both. So I do a little bit of family medicine, but mainly it's this community advocacy policy role, whether in I was in formal public health and now with, with upstream. Okay. Uh, there's there's something I think a lot of left-wing groups have to... Well, I, I'm, I'm going to describe that to you guys. I, I think that's probably a fair characterization, but feel free to dispute it. But... Uh, left-leaning groups, um, I think, run into, especially mm-hmm. I think you guys are, are pretty committed to ha- having a pretty good evidence base for the kind mm-hmm. of policies you guys talk yeah. about, is I think it's fair to say that there's a lot of well-meaning but woolly thinking about how to address problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how do you guys sort of navigate sort of stakeholders or different kind of groups that you guys work with that, you know, obviously their hearts are in the right place, but they're advocating something that you don't think will really meaningfully help or could possibly make things worse? I think the evidence is always a key part of it. It is, you know, it doesn't always sway people. But (laughs) for health in particular, there is so much there right now about how lower income is connected with all these different health conditions, about how your race is connected with Mm -hmm. race, which is a social construct. But we know that if you are black or if you are indigenous, you will have, you're more likely to have poorer health. So taking those types of, that type of evidence, I think, really helps. I, I do try not to use left and right so much because I think of coming also from my public health background, like sure. you, you end up with all kinds of partners. So say with living wage work, you can end up with all kinds of business partners. You can end up with government um, partners, pharmacare. Again, it makes business sense. So you end up with, you know, the board of trade signing on to your, your work and things like that. So um, I think in every issue, you can usually find some angle, either economic or moral sometimes, um, or health related, because people get that, like, the the campaigns around shutting down coal powered electricity plants health was a major factor in that because you can understand that you're more likely to end up in the er with an asthma attack or was connected to heart attacks respiratory conditions you know your copd from smoking is going to get Mm -hmm. worse because of the, the air quality so making those kind of connections were really impactful and people understood those so i think the ways I try to sway people are, you know, using the health connection because people get that. They want to be healthy. They want their family to be healthy. I think using stories is really helpful. I often, without names, talk about my patients because every day I I see people who, you know, their issue 
is the health condition in front of me, but then they start talking about their work 12-hour shifts in the call center where they can't take a break to pee, much less go for a walk, or I just said pee on a podcast. <laughs> That's um, totally said much they... worse. <laughs> <laughs> or, you know, they, you know, they can't support their kid to participate in the simplest of act or even not so like like hockey things like that that are big sports where mm-hmm. we're thinking of hockey yeah the the yeah the costs of things that you can't support your child to do that will help them be healthy that's what they talk about and mm-hmm. so the patient stories the evidence um, and then just trying to find a way to, to connect it to whatever perspective of the person you're talking to so I guess this becomes my question um, in your response you indicated like, maybe a dozen different policy areas um, that this covers everything from what would presumably be tax credits or affordability of sports for kids to power uh, electrical generation to, I mean, take your pick. You you really covered a lot of different topic areas. How do you sort of not narrow your focus, but how do you define your focus within these? Because you obviously being a small organization, can't necessarily cover and build expertise on each of these issues. And these issues occur at every level of government. Um, So what are sort of maybe the issues that you focus on of that grab bag most prominently? And sort of how do you decide those ones? Yeah, so we do... We do talk generally to try to make that just general connection that everything is connected to health, which, you know, as you just described that it is every policy is connected to health. But definitely we do need to focus because one, we're a small organization Two, you want to show that you've you've made a change somewhere. So I, I mentioned we, we have done a lot of work around income in particular, just knowing that that is one of the, the biggest determinants yeah. of health. So that's been a focus of a lot of our our previous work, um, the health and all policies work. I guess, you know, there's always a range of reasons why you choose a topic. So one, kind of where the evidence is, you know, what are some hot topics? What are the policy windows that you think you can actually accomplish something? Mm So I'd say going forward, some of the areas we're we're going to focus on, it's continuing the, the income policy discussion, but the idea of, um, we talk a lot about a living wage, but we want to really talk about, you know, what does it mean to be healthy with with a wage? So, you know, basic income, often it, it is the basic, you know, living wage is still pretty basic. It's mm-hmm. it's not necessarily being healthy. So we've done some work around that to show, you know, what would that look like with all the different supports to to be able to support you in a, in a way that you actually are able to enjoy your life in addition to, to just getting by. Um, we've made reconciliation a, a focus because I and we think that it is one of the, the biggest health issues facing Canada. So through this conference, through some of our partnerships that we've made now that we want to look at what does social determinants of health look like with more of an Indigenous lens when you're looking at um, land land-based connections and and that's very much drawing on you know, who can we work with and whose work can we actually support um, being a, an organization that's you know more of an outsider but we want to support others others work um, but yeah we do need to we pick a few areas so right now and kind of going forward it, it is more kind of the income side the reconciliation side we'll continue our health and all policies work and working with governments at different levels that that are interested in implementing that and we can we can work with them around that um, and then using our storytelling to kind of supplement all of that yeah. and I'd say we also 
a lot of people come to us now for some of the knowledge translation piece. So, so that's another place we do end up focusing kind of with our partners, what they're trying to, to put out. So whether it's around the food security policy has been one area. Um, we've, we're doing some government contracts around different work that they want to be more accessible to, to civil society organization. So I guess the last part is just who comes to us and, yeah. and what we can do to support them. For sure. Yeah. yeah I've noticed just the, it's, it's when you're a small organization on a fairly small budget, so much of what you end up doing is, is happenstance. It's just like whatever you got, you can get done, you know? And I, I really hear you on that. <laughs> when people come to you with things, you're like, okay, there we go. If someone wants to do you know, a portion of the work yeah. that makes it, all that much sweeter to, to hop on that. It's, uh, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. always you want to find that balance of being proactive and that's yeah. why we've picked a few areas to focus on as well as, you know, you're going to be opportunistic of, of things that come up and ways you can work with others. Yeah, that's like, yeah. I, I think that's the reality for like any kind yeah. of smaller organizations yeah. trying to navigate. Uh, so you actually, speaking of, um, Upstream I think is pretty unique in the sense that it is a pretty small organization and uh, you guys are, are spread out a bit all over the country mm-hmm. and you work on different levels of government. I think most organizations will sort of pick one. Uh, where, you know, they, they, they'll, you'll, you'll be based in Saskatoon and work really on Saskatchewan issues or, you know, Saskatoon Municipal or even you're based in Ottawa, you work on federal issues and you don't so much hop from place to place. Like CCPA is a good example of this. Like CCPA is a pretty big organization, but there's the CCPA federal office, Ontario office, Saskatchewan office, etc., and they sort of split that up. So how do you guys find that that works when you're having to focus on all of these sort of different, I mean, health in all policies is really looking at all policies. And how do you guys find that that works beyond the sort of like institutional constraints of, of having to go from, from jurisdiction to jurisdiction? And how do you find that you have to act as a bridge between different levels? Yeah, I'd say, well, we we can't cover everything. And so in terms of how we try to choose things now, given we do have dispersed geography of, of where we're located, we are trying to choose a mix of how can we be involved in an issue locally or provincially in mm-hmm. each of the areas, in particular where we are. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but I think having that person-to-person connection is also really important. So we are taking on some some work in, in each of the areas where we have staff located, but we are also trying to focus more nationally, I think, as we're going as an organization, you know, we will have some provincial focus, but we'd like to, to say, you know, we're yeah. a national organization and we are trying to, to focus more nationally. So I think now our, our policy focus going forward will likely have a bit more of a, a national focus or working with Indigenous governments focus. Those yeah. are kind of the two areas that, that going forward we're going to, to have more of. But yeah, I think given where our location is and where we started in Saskatchewan, we're probably always going to have close connects there and, and work comes up there also. Yeah, that, that is perfectly fair. Um, what do you think is the biggest public health issue in Canada right now? Probably income inequality, yeah. which I think a lot of a lot of people probably say. I think it's also, I see it as a health issue. So mm-hmm. it's both bad because, you know, it's unequal and we want to fix that. But just knowing that we are it leads to so many preventable health conditions and especially knowing budget wise how much is spent on on health care especially with you yeah. know a lower tax base it's even you know a, a more significant chunk of of our spending if we can be dealing with that as and consider it a health issue instead yeah. of continuing to to feel like we need to you know patch people up after they're already sick um, that would be 
a huge accomplishment if we can address that. And we know it's doable because yeah. many countries have done it and are far more equal than, than we are in terms of income inequality. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of people will sort of know intuitively or have learned that you know, being poor is expensive, right? Because you always have to make do with second tier things and you're always having to catch up with whatever happened. Mm-hmm. You know, you're catching up on bills or what have you. And it seems like that kind of holds true at the societal level as well, is that mm-hmm. poverty is itself quite expensive to deal with and the simplest kind of yeah. way to deal with it is to make sure that we don't have this much of it i think is that is that a yeah i think I, that? both at the individual level like it's really expensive to be poor because yeah. you end up spending more on all kinds of things from you know fees for each time you need to do something versus being able to you know spread out costs and on... the 30 dollars shoes that fall apart every month yeah, as opposed exactly. to the 200 dollars pair of shoes that last for years sort yeah. of and it literally like it changes your brain function like i find some of this just so you know it's heartbreaking to think about kids who's brain changes because they are living in poverty and they're Mm -hmm. not able you know to eat well and to function well in school and it starts you know even before birth but we know that those changes happen that just the stress of of living in poverty changes you know you physically physiologically and that's what also makes you more likely to to have different illnesses but yeah our, our kids are are not able to to function as well as they can right from birth because of it and and that just is it's it's wrong we shouldn't we we shouldn't have that and and we do so you've been running upstream for for about a year now as you mentioned what what do you think you're most proud of of having accomplished in that time Oh goodness, it's always hard to talk about yourself. <laughs> That's like a, like a job interview question. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a... <laughs> it really is. Um, you know, I've tended to take on either I was past chair now of an organization called Canadian Doctors for Medicare, and now Upstream, kind of taking on well, something. It sounds like you guys were incredibly successful. We have, <laughs> we we have Medicare <laughs> mission accomplished. Well, <laughs> there's always things to to both defend and make better. Fair. Um, I think, you know, one thing is, you know, taking on something after both organizations were founded by, you know, very well-known, um, charismatic, inspirational kind of people. So you're you're following in the footsteps of, of someone who's, you know, built something and that's, yeah. you know, challenging. So I'd say accomplishment is that, you know, we're still, we're still here. We're still known. I think we've built up our, continued to build up our reputation. Mm-hmm. We've, you know, continued to be involved in, in different advocacy and policy campaigns. We've, you know, put on a good conference. I think, although you could probably tell me since you attended part of it. <laughs> um, so I, I think that's one piece of it. And, you know, on a, you know, smaller level, I think coming into an organization and wanting to, to keep the staff going and together and excited, especially as we're in different places, we've, we've hired someone new. So we're, we're trying to expand and grow. And so I think that's, that's an accomplishment too. And yeah, just, just building on what was there before and, and now feeling much more comfortable in the role and feeling like now we can continue to, to grow because we've gone past this right. hard transition phase of, of, you know, people leaving because of various reasons and then, you know, starting with new people. You guys are probably the organization I can think of that has the most people leave because they've been elected to office. 
Yeah, it's a you know it's a good problem to have because you know people can then enact their their policies. But of course, you know Ryan or Ryan Miley, the the founder, is now involved in politics at the provincial level in Saskatchewan. We had a another key staff person now elected municipally in Saskatoon. So I think it's fantastic. It leaves a, a gap in our organization. But you know to be able to be in roles where you can then put these into ideas into practice, it's it's really exciting. Yeah, good problem to have, I guess, as an organization. It is, and you know there's still people that we we talk to and you know they're they're not involved in day-to-day but definitely kind of leaders we look to so what is the the next thing for you for you guys like in the coming year like you mentioned reconciliation so Mm -hmm. i mentioned that'll continue to be a priority Mm -hmm. but what does that sort of uh look like in in concrete terms Yes, we actually, after our last conference, we've just kind of gone through a strategic planning process with our board and now kind of mapping out next steps with our our staff. So um, we've already kind of set kind of the groundwork for some of the the income policy work that we want to do. So I I can't say yet that it is, you know, we are doing this exactly because it's in the proposal and working with partners phase, but I'm really excited to, to reframe how we think about income. There's a lot of people out there working on kind of income related issues, but I don't think that the health side of it in some places in Ontario there's the decent work and and health mm-hmm. network so there are some places where that is a, a focus we want to work with those organizations but we really want that to be a, a major part of you know how we consider uh, income through a health lens so that's part of our work reconciliation is is a major focus also in particular in the context of climate change so mm-hmm. um, kind of our, our new staff has is also has a lot of expertise in climate change issues. So we're we're looking at that and how we better partner with other indigenous well, with indigenous organizations to to further kind of both climate change policy areas as well as um, the social determinants of health lens, but from an indigenous perspective. Okay. Well, Tim, do you have any other questions? No, I think that's everything for me. Okay. Dr. Monica Dutt, Executive Director of Upstream. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you.